0: you will take your bibles and turn to haggai chapter 1 haggai chapter 1 it's in the uh, old testament if you're looking in the pew bible it's somewhere around page 793 haggai chapter 1 today's a message that actually is the day that we normally hear the state of the church address and it's going to be it is going to be that but it's going to be that and more a message entitled what time is it Haggai chapter 1 and we're going to read a verse we're going to read 11 verses if you found that and you can would you stand to honor the reading of God's holy word from the prophet Haggai <clears throat> In the second year of King Darius on the first day of the sixth month the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel the governor of Judah and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The Lord of hosts says this. These people say, The time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now the Lord of hosts says this. Think carefully about your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. The Lord of hosts says this. Think carefully about your ways. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build a house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You expected much, but it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts, because my house still lies in ruins, while each of you is busy with his own house. So on your account... The skies have withheld the dew and the land's its crop. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, on the people and the animals, and on all that your hands produce. A message today entitled, What Time Is It? Let's pray together. Father, I pray for these next moments the way that I've been before you this week. And I pray that You will take your word today, and like a sword, you will lance our hearts. I pray that you will help us to see who we are in light of you and how we're no different than that group of people called Israel. I pray that as we walk through today, I pray for your spirit to be present. Thank you for how we've been led to your throne in worship. And Lord, may we just reside there a little bit and let you look at us with those eyes of fire, revealing to us who we are, and then implanting in our heart what you want us to do. In your name, amen. Amen. In the year 1969, a rock group released their first album entitled Chicago Transit Authority. Today, that is a classic album, and here, all these years later, Chicago is still performing. On that original album, they don't call it Chicago Transit Authority anymore today, it's just Chicago. But on that original album was a song which was Robert Lim's first of many hits. The song was entitled, Does Anybody Really Know What Time It Is? And the chorus goes something like this for those who aren't listening to that genre. Does anybody really know what time it is? And does anybody really care? If so, I can't imagine why. We all have time enough to cry. And it's interesting, as the song progressed, they did that chorus three times. And the first time they sang the chorus, we all have time enough to cry. The second course we all have time enough to fly. And the third course is we all have time enough to die. Certainly, that is the truth of that song. Because no matter how busy you are, no matter what you do, one day if the Lord doesn't come back, you are going to die. But I want to ask this question today. What time is it? Now, some of you are smiling and you're looking at your watches. You're going, well, you know, Brother Jerry, it's... Just a few minutes before you're supposed to be through if you just want to know the truth. What time is it today? You know, if I were to give you paper and you write it down, we'd get everything. Well, well, it's uh, uh, 1038 or 1033 or it's time for a new president or it's time to clean up our politics or it's time for this country to wake up. And, and, and I would get all kinds of answers about what time it is. But can I just be square with you? I really don't care What you say about what time it is. I don't even really care about what I say about what time it is. But I really want to know what God says about what time it is. Because he's the one that sees the end from the beginning. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He is the one that holds the answers to life. And so in order to do that, we need to take just a few minutes and put a story in place. A story about his people as relates to Haggai chapter 1. So I'm going to talk real fast, so you better listen fast or you're going to be lost. I'm going to tell you some things that you know, but let's let's put this in perspective. We're talking about the children of Israel. The children of Israel were a very stubborn, stiff-necked Baptist bunch. We find, and we're just going to go back. You remember they were in captivity in Egypt. Moses came in and let them out of Egypt. Let them through uh, 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 with his rod. God parted the Red Sea. God brought water from the rock. God sent manna from heaven. And God, in short order, brought them to Kadesh Barnea, where they gave a first stab at Baptist polity—that is, the democratic process. They sent a committee off to ask if they should really do what God had already told them to do, and they came back, and it was a miserable failure. We should learn. Ten to two, we're not going to do what God called us to do. And so you know what happened? God sent them into the wilderness for 40 years to bury people. 85 to average, 85 to 90 people a day, seven days a week for 40 years had to be buried. And all during that time, you know what these people were? They were still a stubborn. They were still rebellious. Every time they got a chance, they turned their back on God and yet God Still loved them. He loved them so much that 40 years later, the leader had now died. God brought them back to the River Jordan. He parted the River Jordan, and he carried them into the Promised Land. That they could have had 40 years earlier. And he carried them into the Promised Land, and he gave them victory all through the Promised Land so they could possess the land. And yet, they still were rebellious. Now fast forward through at least three kingships that I'm going to mention to you that you'll know, through the kingship of Saul, through the kingship of David, through the kingship of Solomon. And they're still rebellious. If you want to turn there to, to make my case, God never, God never uh, uh, I'm telling you, He finally got fed up with them because the, the country got so bad that He split them in half had the north country of Israel, southern country of Judah. In the 36th chapter of Chronicles, you find this kind of culminating. Folks, you think I've lost my mind. I don't normally do history lessons like this, but it's important, so hang on. Chapter 36, it says, Then the common people took Jehoahaz, Jehoahaz, son of Josiah, and they made him king. He was 23 years old when he became king. And the king of Egypt, uh, by the way, he reigned three months, king of Egypt came in and deposed him. And so what the king of Egypt did, he came and he bought the throne of Israel, of Judah, and then he put, if you will, Jehoiakim as king. Now watch this, Jehoiakim was 25 years old, I'm reading verse 5 if you're there, he reigned 11 years, but listen to what this said, he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It still was permeating even the White House. And so he did so evil in the sight of the Lord that King Nebuchadnezzar, I believe in his, uh, prompted by God, came into Judah and dethroned him. And by the way, he took, he took the king, he took articles from the holy house back into Babylon. And uh, uh, then when he's gone, they put Jehoiakim in, into power. Jehoiakim lasted. Are you ready for this? Three months and ten days, according to God's Word right here. And it says, And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, how, that's another message for another time, Brother Jerry. How in four months does people know, do people know that you do evil? And you know how Jehoiakim went the same way as Jehoiakim? King Nebuchadnezzar came back and took him off to Babylon because he was evil. God allowed it to happen, and he took more items from the treasury. We're not through. Then Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king and he reigned for 11 years. And it says, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet at the Lord's command. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar. He became obstinate and hardened his heart against returning to the Lord. All the leaders and the priests and the people multiplied their unfaithful, detestable practices. They defied the Lord's, defiled the Lord's temple. So now we get to the end of thirty-six. I want you to hear how wicked they are. The Lord God of their ancestors sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again, for he had compassion. Even though they were rebellious, even though they abandoned God, he still wanted to bring them back. But watch what it says. But they kept ridiculing God's messengers. despising the words of his preachers, scoffing at the words of his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. I don't know about you, but it concerns me to think that God can be tested until there is no remedy. So he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. And watch what the king of the Chaldeans did. He killed their choice, young men with a sword. He had no pity on young man or virgin, elderly or aged. He handed them all over. And this time he took all the living survivors and he took all the articles out of the temple to Babylon. Now let's fast forward. In the first year, we're getting here now, in the first year of King Cyrus is what it says in verse 22 of chapter 36. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah fulfilled that the Lord put it in the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire country. King Cyrus was a pagan king and God spoke to him. Watch what he said. He said, The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdom of the earth and has appointed me, a pagan king, to build a temple in Jerusalem in Judea. Whoever among you want to go, go and build the temple. Now do you have that? King Cyrus, a pagan king, said, Go back and do the Lord's work. That is in the first year of King Cyrus. Now let me give you some years. That is about five thirty nine BC. Do you have that? Five thirty nine BC. Isn't it just like God? To find his people in trouble and to give them a way out. He told them, sent them a message to go back home and build the temple, do my work. And as soon as they got free from Cyrus, they didn't go do it. Now, fast forward to Haggai. You have the first year of King Cyrus, 539, and here you have the second year of King Darius. That is 520. The better part of 20 years had passed since God said, Go and do my work. Go and do my work. And they still had not done His work. Folks, you know what time it is? It's time for us to get an honest evaluation of who they are and who we are. And before we become too critical of these guys, we need to see some things. I call what we want to examine about these people and how they and how they relate to us. I call it the problematic condition of the people. The problematic, Cameron, the problematic condition of the people. You say what in the world are you talking about? Well, you see everything that God did for them, they did, they never followed through on anything. They stayed rebellious, just like we do. It gives us three characteristics of these people. First of all, they were insubordinate. God said, go home and build. And they said, it's not time to build. Did you hear that? God said, do it. And they said, we don't think so. How arrogant, how conceited, how prideful do you have to be that when God says, do something, we don't do it. And when I look here in verses 2 and 3 and 4, I I hear a real tone change. Verse 2, God says, these people say the time has not come to build? What did I say 20 years earlier? And then in verse 3, it gets indicted. He said, huh, is it really time for you guys to live in your luxurious houses? That's what the paneled houses were. Is it really time for you to live in luxurious houses while my work lies in ruin? You see, these folks were insubordinate. They were insubordinate. When God told them to do something, they just said, listen, I wonder, folks, is there an application for that today? This book tells us to do so many things. I wonder if God sees us in our hearts as insubordinate sometimes. He tells us to do things, and we're too busy. Insubordinate. The second thing I see here is they were incompetent. It says, you planted much, but harvested little. You know what the truth is? The church of the 21st century is so incompetent because we're too busy taking care of ourselves. We're busy, 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 busy. We do, 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 do. And oh, by the way, God, if you'll bless it, bless it. The truth is... God doesn't want to bless what we come up with. God wants us to get in on what he's up to. And as long as we try to plan our own thing and do our own thing, God is under no obligation to bless it. And most of what we think is important is not important to God. Case in point, you know I'm an NFL fan. The big name in, uh, in professional football this year is Tim Tebow. They hate Tim because he loves God. There's no other reason. They hate Tim because he loves God. And when the Broncos went on about a five or six game winning streak, they tried to corner him to say, the reason you've been able to bail this team out and the reason that that, uh, um, the team is winning is because of God. Don't you love Tim's response? He goes, you know what? This is a football game. God's got more important things on his mind than football. And I say that the day before the national championship. You see, God has some big things on his mind. His view is eternal. His view is big. I probably should finish that. There's nothing wrong with the national championship. There's nothing wrong with the sports and all this. The problem is when it it eclipses our love for our Lord. They were insubordinate. They were incompetent. And you know what else I read here? They were insatiable. They were insatiable. Never got enough. And look here at verse 6. It says you eat, never get enough. You drink, never get enough. Put on clothes, never get enough. You make money, and it's like throwing money down a toilet. Whatever you try to do, it is just not enough. Rockefeller was asked, how much more money do you need? And he said, just a little bit more. You know why that is? It's because we're trying to... Become satisfied we're trying to feel a carnal desire. And it can be good things as well as bad things. Jerry, I don't know. I know you were down in Mobile. But one of the most moving messages that I heard in the pastor's conference was preached by Herb Revis of North Jacksonville. He said, Folks, in this thing of worship, thanks for the way you led us today before I say what I'm about to say. In this thing of worship. He said, we're never going to get it as long as we're trying to please people. He said, for the traditionalists, you can put two pipe organs and a brass quintet and sing Mozart and Brahms and you will never please everybody. For the country people... You can put band, you can put a uh, uh, guitars, the gospel people, two qu- quartets, mixed trio. You can do all the things, the drums and the bass guitar, and it'll never be gospel enough for those who want contemporary. They can be ripping that uh, uh that song off all they want to, and and having that pound 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 drum back there, and it'll never be contemporary enough. For those who want bluegrass, you can have them picking the mandolin and the the banjo and you can have three teeth when they smile and it will not be bluegrass enough. You can have your kids to have their belt buckles around their knees or the old folks with their belt buckles up around their chest and it will stop being enough because we are basically insatiable. As long as we try to feel carnal desires, it will never You will always want more. That was the problematic condition of the people in Israel. And I say this to you today with all the love in my heart. It is what's wrong with the church in America. It's what's wrong with the church in Alabama. And quite likely, it's what's wrong with the church at Hueytown. What time is it? That brings us to what I really want to get to. We're going to change scriptures in just a second. But I don't think we need to leave this scripture without two quick points. Hear the words of God. In verse 5. The Lord of hosts says this. Listen. Listen. Think carefully. Think carefully about your ways. Verse 7. The Lord of hosts says this think carefully about what you're doing. That takes me back to a time when I was a kid and I was about to make a decision. My dad would say, Buddy, you better think about it. You better think about the consequences. That's exactly what God said. Because we, like they have this problematic, this ongoing condition of being insubordinate, incompetent, and insatiable because we're sinners. If you will, take your Bibles now and turn over to Romans. Over to Romans chapter 13. And I want us to see in the time that remains the powerful call to the people. The powerful call to to us. To us. As in your pew Bible. It's around page 966. On the screen, we pick up at verse 11, but I want you to know what that besides this is. Verse 9, 8 and 9, he tells us to owe no man anything, love everybody, do not and, and obey the commandments, and love your neighbor yourself. And verse 10 says, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And now verse 11 on the screen, besides this, besides this, knowing the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, and daylight is near. so. Let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daylight, not in carousing or in drunkenness, not in sexual impurity or promiscuity, not in quarreling or in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no plans to satisfy the fleshly desires. I find four calls. And if you have slept till now, please don't sleep because what's going to happen is is that you're going to catch the last part of something the preacher says, and you're going to go out and misquote me, and we're going to have to pull the CD out to tell you that I didn't say what you said I said. You know what time it is? It's first of all... Go ahead, gentlemen. It's first of all time for us to wake up. It's time for us to wake up. He says already the hour for you to wake up from your sleep. You know, the, the implication is that everybody was sleeping and right into. writing to. Being asleep is, and being asleep on the job gets you fired. Being asleep is weird because when you're asleep, you have no clue of what's going on around you. Let me tell you this story. My granddaddy, Papa, 1969, Camille, bearing down on South Mississippi. The storm had started when about 9 o'clock Papa went and got in his bed and just went to sleep. I remember us being under a table, the house shaking. We have a, we have a mattress and a table sitting on top of us. Papa wakes up the next morning. He had slept all night. He found out there was a tree on his uh, garage. Limbs from that tree were on his house. Chicken yard messed up. His shop messed up. Things were messed up. He didn't know what was going on because he is asleep. You know what the truth is? This is a call that's needed today in America. For the church, the people of God, to wake up. I've been praying for a while, and I have some very specific prayers for us for 2012. I pray that we will wake up to the point that we will become painfully aware of the spiritual condition of our community. I pray that we will see the lostness in our community. Jesus said, open your eyes and see the fields for the white end of harvest. And you know what? As I was praying through this, and you know, folks, for all the ups and downs of these past years, one of the things that I consistently brag on this congregation for, we don't have a lot of rich people, but you know what we have? We have people who will give. You present a, I've told preacher after preacher after preacher, you present this congregation with a practical need and they will reach down in their pocket, even if they don't have it sometimes, and they'll give $20, 50 $100 to make sure that no need goes unmet. Very, the very reason that Jesus said, open your eyes and see the fields because they're white to harvest is because if we ever see the lostness of our friends and our neighbors, we will be compelled to be in our community. We'll be compelled to take the good news of the gospel to them. It will not be enough to remain in this building. I pray that this year will be the year that we will wake up and see the work to be done. Are you awake spiritually or are you asleep? But then he moves on. He says, I don't just want you to wake up. I want you to give up. Well, wait a minute, Brother Jerry. You want us to do something, but you want us to give up? Well, yeah. Paul says in verse 12, let us discard the deeds of darkness. Let us discard anything. Let us give up. Let us surrender anything. Let's throw down to God anything that stands in the way of us doing His bidding, of us doing His work. At this point, I'm reminded of a guy named Jack Taylor. Some of you may have heard him. A week after I proposed to my wife 1974, I had an opportunity to meet him and hear him. And I'll never forget how alive he brought the story of Moses at the burning bush to me. I'll relay it to you. Because it illustrates the, how we need to give up things, turn loose things, discard things, put to death things. Moses comes into the burning bush, backside side of Midian. He's got the rod in his hand, right? They have a conversation and God says, what's that in your hand? He goes, a rod. God says, throw it down. And, uh, and, and as Jack was telling this, in his divine imagination, he was thinking what we would have to do. God, you know what? I'm on the backside of the median. I don't have one possession to my name except this rod. And I'm pretty good with this rod. I don't throw it down. Throw it down. God, do you understand that with this rod I lead sheep? Throw it down. Do you understand that my life is with this rod? God says, throw it down. And the Scripture records he throws it down and it becomes a snake. Now, Moses didn't stand on the backside of Midian having a love affair with a poisonous snake. He knew what snakes were about. And the part that I really get, get on board with Moses, I'm there, I understand. I throw a stick down, it becomes a snake. I'm history. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It is related. Moses is running and God goes, Hey, Moses, I want you to come back and pick this rod up by the tail. Moses didn't stop running near as fast as he started running. Finally, he slowed down. He turned around. He said, Lord, what did you say? You heard me. And he goes back, and he's looking at that snake that was once his rod. And he says, now, God, let me get this right. You want me to pick this snake up? Yes. By the tail? Yes. Well, God, I don't run your business But if I pick it up by the tail, do you understand that leaves the business end free? And God said, exactly. If you'll pick it up by the tail, if you'll take the lesser end and let me take the business end, we can be a team. Verse 20 of chapter 3 of Exodus calls that the rod of God. And Moses and the rod of God went to Egypt and devastated Egyptian mythology. With it, he parted the Red Sea. With it, he brought water from the rock because he threw it down to God. Which brings us to the principle. There is, there is about anything you hold in your hand. There is about anything you hold in your hand that has not been thrown down to God. The nature of a snake What do you have in your hand? Well, I have my talent. Throw it down to God. What do you have in your hand? I have my influence. Well, throw it down to God. What do you have in your hand? My personality. Well, throw it down to God. What do you have in your hand, believer? Throw it down to God. It is time for us to give up. And we hang on to things so tightly. And we think we're doing so good. I'm reminded of a story that probably Brother Terry's told a hundred times. I've told many times myself, but it illustrates it. When the natives used to catch monkeys, the way they'd catch monkeys, they'd take a, a coconut and they'd hollow out a hole, just big enough for a little old monkey's hand to get in there, and they'd put bait in there. And by the way, they had tethered that coconut to a tree. Now that monkey would stick his hand down in that coconut and he would take the bait and close his hand on it and he couldn't get it out. And when he tried to run, it was tethered to a tree. All the stupid monkey had to do was let go and he could get away. But he held on to that bait until he was captured and killed. You know, today we hold on to things. We hold on to traditions. We hold on to beliefs. We hold on to relationships. We hold on to possessions. We hold on to attitudes. We hold on to all kinds of things. And it's killing us. And it's time for us to throw them down at his feet. There is somebody, at least one person, if not most of us, who need to come today and just give up. Discard it. And give it to him. He says it's time. You know what time it is? It's time for you to wake up. It's time for you to give up. It's time for you, number three, to dress up. It's time for you to dress up. George, we're glad to have you today, buddy. One of the people on the front lines, we pray for you every week. I noticed he came in in his fatigues. You know when a military man goes to a function. He has a uniform that he wears. You can look at his uniform and you can tell whether he's Air Force, Army, Navy, Marine, Coast Guard. You can tell what he is by how he dresses. Paul says, let us put on the armor of light. And one of the reasons we need to put on his armor, we need to dress like him so people will know who we belong to. It's time for God's people to display His banner, to wear His logo, displaying Him. Michael Katz said it three, three or four months ago when we were in Albany. He said, sad to say that people in this country know us more for what we hate than who we love. You see, it is time for us to dress up, put Him on, put on His character, we need people to see. You know, there's another reason for us to dress up. George, you'll appreciate this. It's because we as believers are in hostile territory. You know what you find when you're in hostile territory? You find a whole bunch of hostiles. Last night in the presidential debate, probably to me one of the most liberal on the, on, the, on the Republican platform took the media to task for their bias against religion. You see, folks, here's what I want to tell you. Because we're in hostile territory, we need to put on, as Paul writes, the full armor. We need to be wearing the armor of God. When Paul wrote that text, he wrote that letter. He was in a Roman jail. I just can't imagine him looking as he's writing at the Roman soldier over there. And he looks at that helmet. He goes, yeah, that's it. We need to have a helmet of salvation. Boy, that breastplate protects your vital organs. We need a breastplate of righteousness. Those shoes, look how fancy those shoes are. And they were fancy shoes for battle. We need to be shod with the preparation of the gospel. And the belt of truth holds the whole uniform together. And then, yes, we need the shield of faith to, to deflect the fiery darts of, doubt of Satan. And then we need the sword of the Spirit. And I can imagine when he said that, he had a firsthand look. First-hand looking at a warrior. Folks, we, we need to dress daily before we go out the door so people can know whose we are. I uh, was having fun this morning at Brotherhood Breakfast, men's breakfast, in my suit and tie. I sat down there and somebody said, you look like a preacher today. And I said, no, i just been sick this week. That's why I look this way. That happened to me this week, uh, and I didn't have my my reverend rig on. I was there in my khakis and whatever, and I sat down at the table, and this lady came up to me. She goes, you look like a preacher. And I go, I'm sorry. I've been taking medicine. I'll get over it. (laughs) Truth is, folks, we need to put on the aura of Christ wherever we go, not just the preacher, you. The calls are these, to wake up, give up, dress up. And number four, we have been here this whole 35 minutes for this place right here. Hang on. Number four, we need to step up. We need to step up. He says, let us walk with decency is in the daylight. Now, how do you do that? You don't carouse. You don't get drunk. Sexual impurity can't be there, promiscuity. And then he says, not in quar- quarreling. You can't even quarrel or be jealous. <sighs> I don't want to pull any punches, and I don't throw any punches. So please hear my heart for a second. I speak first to the to the folks that I would call covenant members. I don't really like this uh, charter member, Troy. To the covenant members, to the initiating members, to those who have been members a long time in this church. Let me say a word to you from the bottom of my heart. If there ever was a church that had reason and right to fold up your tents, to write Ichabod across the door, to turn off the lights, close the doors, and go someplace else. is this church. When I think back, we 2011. I think back to 1991, and you can take years in front of 1991 and behind 1991. During a, about a six-year period of time, this congregation had such a massive leadership failure. The thing. What was probably tempted to do was, let's call it quits. And you didn't. Now, I don't know whether you didn't because you were just doggedly determined that you weren't going to close the doors or whether you really came in and fell before God and said, Lord, this is tough. We need your help. But whatever you did, you made it through. And I believe God... Left you, left us here to do his business, to do his work. On the other side of the corner, let me tell you something that you don't realize. That's been almost twenty years ago. In the past fifteen years, sixteen years, you have had two pastors. Brother Billy was here nine, I'm here six. Today I start my seventh year. You take nine and six is 15. You know what the truth is? You have an average tenure of your pastor as of today of the last two pastors of between seven and a half and eight years. And you do that in a church culture. Now please listen. You do that in a church culture among Southern Baptist churches where the average stay of the pastor... Now, hang on. I know about uh, Brother Doug being here 27 years. I know about Brother Terry being at Crestway all those years. I'm telling you, when you factor in the long terms and the short terms, the last statistic I read was that the average tenure in the average church of the average pastor had increased from 18 to 24 months. You see, folks, God is wanting to do something in this place. But if he's going to do something, it will not be the pastor or the pastor and the deacons who do it by themselves. It will be because we lock arms. We put aside these petty differences that don't matter. When we get to heaven, they won't even register on the blip in heaven. We see the fields are white under harvest, and we step up. So now you're saying, Brother Jerry, how in the world can we step up? Folks, I call on us to step beyond the buildings. I call, I call on us to step beyond the Christianity that we've been living. Paul tells us to walk decently and he tells us not to quarrel, not to be jealous, not to carouse, not get drunk. Before I lay this in front of you, I just want to give you a warning. Before I lay this in front of you, because I'm calling you, I'm calling you, I'm calling you to step up today. We spent the last two years just in turmoil. It's time for us to put it behind and step up. But now, folks, please listen. When I put this to you in a second and I call you to step up and commit, you need to be warned. If you choose to follow God, if you choose to step up, people are going to hate you. People are going to ostracize you. People are going to antagonize you. I'm sorry, did I interrupt somebody? Last Thursday night, the deacons and I met We don't take our responsibility lightly. Officers and I met at six thirty, the deacons and I met at seven we joined the deacons at seven and we didn't get out, didn't get home to between nine fifteen and nine thirty. Dealt with things that needed to be dealt, but a lot of our time was spent on on spent on what it would mean to step up and get in our community. I wanna just give you a couple of things. Because some of you are saying, boy, I want to do that, but how do I do it? Shirley Bush and her team have done an excellent job of planning a month of celebration here of God's heritage. Truth is, the the brochures that we've made, they'll be handed out, will be mailed out next week. You've already seen around the building, posters, something like this. You want to know, you have a great four-week window. Next month, to invite somebody, Brother Jerry, what's that going to do for their salvation? We don't know. They may come to one of that services just out of curiosity, and they may give their heart to Christ. I have some bro. I have some. uh, I have ten. Didn't want to be. I didn't want to assume anything. I have ten here. We can make plenty more. These need to be up and around. You have four weeks next next month to invite people to see what God's doing. At Hueytown will you for the last month the deacons had a list and you're gonna see that I've changed it here they had a list it was a hundred ways I didn't want to give you two sheets and so it's got a little pencil here 82 ways you want to know how to get into your community you you want an idea about how to touch your community individually. We talked about this, and I'm going to tell you what came of it. But one of the men finally said, you know, Brother Jerry, when I read this list, people could do this out of their home. They don't have to be tied into the church and all this. They just may not have thought about it. And so right here gives you 82 ideas how you, how you can reach out to your neighborhood. Deacon's talked all about it, and one of the things that we think is this year we, we're going to promote at least three things. Are you ready? First thing, we're going to take the lead and plan movie, some movie nights so that we can invite our community. We'll use things like Face of the Giants, Courageous, Fireproof, some other things. We now have the, the capabilities of setting it up in the gym, have popcorn, and just have a party. To touch people, let them know we care about them. Additionally, we, we want to plan at least three external events this year. Whether it's a barbecue. One of the men said, hey, our whole community loves to eat. We got that barbecue out back. Let's fire it up. Let's let the barbecue smell get all over the community. Let's let them know that they can come eat. And let's see if we can forge some, some connections. We'll have a barbecue. We're talking about a community wide Easter egg hunt to get into the lives of people. Let people know we care about them. In this box, this is not new to you. In this box are cards, they're clipped in five. These cards are love cards. We've done this before. You have you have them in your purse, and you're driving through McDonald's or something, or you're sitting at a restaurant. and You ask the waitress, "Can you tell me how much their ticket is over there, or what is the price of what what is the how much is the ticket of the car behind me?" They'll tell you it's eight bucks, and you go, "Well, I can do that," and you pay for their you pay for their meal, and you just say, "Would you hand this to them? Just let them know." We're just sharing the love of Jesus. And on the card it says, we just wanted to share the love of Jesus in a practical way with you, Hueytown Baptist Church. May I tell you about this so you don't think it's trite? Having lunch with Kevin Hill three weeks ago, we got to talking about some things, and he was talking about the cards that they use. They do this week in and week out. He said, I get a call from a lady, and she has received one of our love cards. And she called me and she said, Pastor, I thought nobody cared about me. That particular lady came to the church. She received the Lord, baptized, working in ministry. Because somebody spent five bucks and said, I love you. I'll tell you one, I'll tell you one other thing before I get on the downhill run. Somebody else has even expressed the interest to start a clothes closet in our building. I'll be talking to Larry about where we can, might be able to do this so that we can be a church of the community. Do you know my hope for this community? My hope and prayer for this community is that we will become such a church in this community that were we actually to close our doors, the community would know it was a void left. Now, how do we do that? Take you back two years ago, and I'm done. The whole thing hinges on us becoming a Jesus church. For those that haven't written this down, you can. For those that know it, Brenda, keep me online back there, girl. The J stands for joyful. Every time we get together, we should be joyful. Jerry Sager. Grant Frederick, Jerry Watts, or anybody else should not have to stand on this platform and urge us to sing. We should sing from a a joyful heart. But may I say this to you? You know one of the ways to make a family joyful? Have a baby! Have a baby! Now, some of you women are going to say, I don't want that much joy in my life right now. I understand that. But if you'll follow the principle You may be the very one to reach out and touch someone and they come and there's a baby born here and and there's joy in the camp because the sinners come home. We need to be joyful. The E stands for encouraging. We need to be encouraging one another. We need to get off the discouraging route. We need to get on the encouraging route. May I just say this? You can't say something good? Shut up! I like that. I may preach that again. I got amens there. If you can't say something good, be quiet. Find something good to say about each other. The first S stands for being sensitive. Sensitive. You know what? You know the reasons that we're so critical of one another? Because we've not walked a mile in their moccasins. The man and his three kids on the train. The kids were running crazy, small kids. Everybody was getting kind of put out at him somebody said, sir, I mean, he was off in Never Neverland looking out the window. Somebody said, sir, you need to take care of your kids. And he goes, huh? He just kind of snapped back, too. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for them to bother you. He said, you don't understand. We have just left the hospital where their mother just died. You see, you don't know what's going on in somebody else's life. And for you to think you do or to make it up is outside of the frame of what God wants you to do. We need to be sensitive to one another. You, unselfish. let me be the most unpopular pastor on record at Hueytown. This church ain't about you. It ain't about me. It's about him. And if we, when we try to make it about ourselves, we become selfish and self-centered. let us be unselfish, and finally, serving. That's what we've been talking about, getting out and serve.